Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. It's not a very kosher thing to say, but truth is, there can be an awful lot of monotony in the study of true crime. Attorneys, judges, even law enforcement officers agree the pursuit of justice isn't always dramatic. Sometimes it's just a workaday kind of thing where you clock in and out like the wolf and the sheepdog in the old cartoon, everybody just making their time. So too for the researcher, showing up to the archives, digging through files and eating the same sandwich and drinking the same coffee day after day after day. But once in a blue moon, you come across a case that causes you to sit bolt upright in your chair. A case that makes you say, the what? A case that causes you to polish your eyeglasses, ask your co-worker, pinch yourself to make sure you're not dreaming. As a rule, we here at Crime Capsule try not to hype. There's enough exaggeration out there as it is. But to be perfectly honest, when we heard about Laurie Verbridge's new book, I had one of those spine-stiffening moments myself. A native of upstate New York, Laurie Verbridge is the author of The Brockport Murder Dog Trial, Bizarre Tragedy and Spectacle on the Erie Canal. Her co-author, Bill Hullfish, unfortunately passed away last year, but we're delighted to have Laurie join us today. And yes, you did hear that right. But if I had a nickel for all you folks out there who said, the Brockport what? Well, that'd be a lot of nickels. Laurie, thank you so much for joining us on Crime Capsule. It is such a pleasure to have you. Well, it's an honor to be here, and I'm so grateful to be able to tell Bill's and my story about my father and his dog. It really is a book for the ages. And before we get to what happened on that day, because it was quite a day, (laughs) um, I wanted to ask you just a little bit about uh, yourself and Bill. I mean, you, you had such a diverse career before coming to this particular project. You never expected to be a historian, did you? No, I always thought I'd write a children's book. <laughs> but then when it came time to dealing with a child with the actual story, I was not able to put it together. But I had all the notes and everything I had taken when my dad was alive, and I had lots of those. So you and Bill Hullfish, who is sadly no longer with us, uh, the two of you came to this particular story from very different ends. And I was wondering if you could, first of all, just tell us a little bit about Bill and about how he arrived at this particular case and then how the two of y'all met. Bill was just a wonderful individual and so he was very, very gifted in the musical talents of the world. He taught at Brockport as a professor so um, he had lots of knowledge. He had written a couple of books about the, can- the Brockport Canal or the Erie Canal. If he were alive right now, he would be saying, it's not the Brockport Canal, it's the <laughs> Erie Canal. <laughs> and you'll see in the book that he definitely tries to make sure that that gets across because so many people called it the Barge Canal, the Erie Canal, and I was one of those for years. <laughs> oh, but now no. I realize it was the Erie Canal. Yeah. Bill was extremely gifted, and it was so funny when um, he, my cousin called me from Brockport, and he said, Lori, there's a guy online. You've got to join Brockport Remembered. He's looking for information about your dad. So I said, okay, Tim, thanks. I'll, I'll get right on that. So I looked up the man that it was, and it was actually Bill's son. And uh, I sent him a private message because I stalked him on Facebook. And, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I sent him my phone number, and uh, he called me right back. And then he said, you really need to speak with my father. He's the writer. So I, um, he 
Bill called me. And when he called me, I was extremely nervous thinking, oh, he's never going to want to do this with me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, come on, come on. (laughs) And I was so excited. And I thought, well, I'll just tell him the story or we'll figure it out. So I had actually started to write the story and I was actually getting to the trial part and I sent him what I had. And um, it was during COVID. So it was really a, a, a difficult time, but we were able to transfer everything each other had. And that's how we decided to co-author. And it was a wonderful partnership. He's really the gifted writer. But I had this story and the parts of it that he didn't have. Yeah, that that's what I found so remarkable is that both of you had different pieces of the puzzle and each of you had gained material or were in possession of research material that the another that the other never could have had. Right. And so it was almost like a, 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 a spiritual awakening for both of us. We were so excited when we talked to each other on the phone the first time and like I said, I thought he was going to be interviewing me. Actually, he was trying to tell me, please let me do it. <laughs> mm, mm, yeah. And, and um, it, it was just a fantastic family he had. Uh, everybody was involved. His wife is a dear. Um, and I think probably kept everything going while he was doing this. Just wonderful people. Um, very community-minded, and his love of history goes Mm. down in the book. Now, the two of you had some painstaking detective work to do in order to tell this particular story. Why was reconstructing the narrative of Idaho the dog and Max Breeze and Victor Fortune, your father, why was that so difficult to reconstruct? Uh, well, for 50 years, basically, when I was in high school, um, well, if I start out with just the first learning of this story, it was when we had a new principal that came to the school in Marion, New York, and the principal challenged me. He brought me into the office, and I remember sitting in the green chair. I was only in fourth grade, so I'd never been to the principal's office before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I remember being really a little nervous about being there. And um, the man came out, and he said his name was Mr. Green, and he was the new principal. And I went into his office with him, and he said to, to me, is your father Victor Fortune? And I said, Yes, he is. Is he from Brockport, New York? I said, well, his parents live in Brockport, but he was born in Medina. And he said, did you know he had a dog named Idaho? And I said, no, I didn't. And he said, you need to go home and ask your dad about that dog because that dog murdered my best friend. And I'm now you can go back to your classroom. And I, I remember, I don't wow. even think I knew what murder was. <laughs> and you're nine parents, years old. And, and this is yeah, what you've just yeah. been told. Yes. And so, anyways, I, when I got home that night, I remember asking Dad, you have a dog named Idaho that murdered somebody? <laughs> and, and he, Hi, Dad. Hope, hope you had a good day, too. <laughs> And he was livid. (laughs) He was very upset, but he kept his cool. And he said, um, but he he told me in later years, he couldn't believe it. Well, when I think about it now, Mr. Green was, I'm sure, traumatized. And back then, as were all the kids that were involved. And so anyways, we stayed home from school the next day, the three of us. uh, I have two sisters. And we were told the story. Why do you think that even though Idaho was your father's dog, your family's dog, why do you think this story had been cut out of your family lore? Um, I I was afraid it was going to be lost. I think my father was very sensitive to the family that lost Maxwell Breeze. Maxwell Breeze was a wonderful kid. Um, it, It was a huge tragedy. But my father sincerely believed the dog was innocent. 
Also, it was a very painful time for all both families. The village of Brockport became divided and they could hardly go anywhere without someone either saying murder dog or um, chastising. Um, my grandmother especially took it hard. Um, and that would have been my dad's mother. Um, it was, um, I, th- I think that the only reason that was passed down was because of Mr. Green in some ways, because it gave me the passion to really want to know what happened. And for years, I wrote the different things. So in a a sense, he did me a favor. Let's talk about what happened, because there's this sort of interesting paradox here. In its day, this trial was one of the most sensational trials, not just in the region, not just in uh, New York, but across the country. But I would like you to take us to the day before it all happened. And I would like you to talk about what life was like in Brockport, the most all-American town that you could possibly imagine. It was <laughs> it was so sort of, I hate to use the word quaint, but I mean, the the first people we meet in your book, Laurie, are, are like nine members of a Sandlot baseball team. I mean, you can't just... <laughs> You can't get more American than that, you know, in, in yeah. July 1936. And so, I mean, help us to understand what life was like so that we can understand what actually happened on July 4th, 1936. Well, it was the Depression, so there wasn't a lot to do. Uh, money was extremely tight. People were hungry. But children always got together, and there was a baseball field that started out as just a field next it was called Wabaco um, Oil. Oil. It was next door to the Wabaco Oil Company, and so it's called Wabaco Field. And the Mucklin Nine were out playing baseball and did it regularly there. Kids played in the park, and that back up pretty close to where my grandparents' house was. Um, my dad was trying to get a job. He was. He had been working. Um, and then he was in the CCCs, so he had gone into Ithaca, New York, and worked and learned a trade, which was truck driving. And then he um, got transferred out to the Salmon River in Idaho, and so he was working on forestry. Um, he had returned home at this time with the dog Idaho. He had gotten her as a little puppy from a litter out there, hadn't he? Yeah, and the puppies were born almost under his bed, or uh, he said under his bed. I was, I've always wondered about that, but that was in my notes. Um, but they stayed under the bed. How how that happened? I've always been trying to picture that. Since sure, I sure. Read that in my notes. Um, but anyways, and he had befriended two dogs while he was in the CCCs. And one was the captain's dog, and his name was Captain, <laughs> the dog. And the other one was Queenie, and she was a stray that had come there. And he noticed when she he got there, she was pretty wide. Very pregnant. Suspect, <laughs> very pregnant. And he said he befriended the dogs because he really had missed his dogs from home. And uh, so the dog, Queenie, became really attached to him. And when it was time for her puppies, um, like I say, they were born under his bed. (laughs) And he um, uh, wrapped a string around the dog's, uh, the puppy's neck and called him Idaho. And that's where Idaho came from. There you go. So... Um, and he brought him back to New York from Idaho, um, where things were still pretty hard. Uh, coming into uh, back home to Brockport to live with your parents, my dad was about 25 years old. And so it would have been really difficult to move back in and get, get started again. But the CCCs had been very good to him, and he was pleased. July 4th. 1936 was a day that changed the entire city. It changed your family's life. Um, it changed really kind of the entire temperament of 
the area where he uh, had grown up and was trying to make a, a home for himself. Um, what what happened that day? Well, in the morning, my dad got up and it was a regular day. He had taken Idaho for a swim down on the back bank of the canal and um, came back. And there were lots of fireworks going off as early, early in the morning they had started. And uh, he noticed that Idaho was really not liking them. And uh, he kept going under his bed there, too. (laughs) (laughs) And and so my father was scheduled to go to a picnic at Hamlin Beach State Park. And he decided that he shouldn't take Idaho. So his parents kept Idaho at home with his 13-year-old brother, Jack. And the dog was sleeping on the porch with them, or he was under the bed most of that day. The day was a hot, humid day. They had had really hot weather that whole season. And the Mucklin Nine were playing baseball and having a great morning. Um, Mid-afternoon, they completed their game and went off to swim in the Brockport Canal, which was often, there weren't any pools or anything like that. So that's where they swam. Yeah, you, you, you work this, with what you got, sure. You work with what you got. And um, while there, they all got in and started swimming and playing around and splashing around. A black dog came along and um, was on top of Maxwell Breeze. And Paul Hamlin was trying to bring Maxwell up, but couldn't do it. And um, Maxwell drowned. And... It was a horrific day. What struck me in your account was that the account of what happened out of a 200-page book is one paragraph because it happened so fast. It happened just like that. Yes, it was very quick. Um, But I, I can't even imagine the young boys that were there and they screamed for help. They got the local constable and he came and they had to drag... I'm sorry, they had to drag Maxwell out of the canal, and he was gone. Was there any, you said that one boy jumped in to try to help Max. What were the other seven doing? They were all swimming, and Paul Hamlin tried to get to him because he could see that Maxwell was struggling, and um, Maxwell went down and it was mucky, polluted water at the time. The dog had run off. Um, and that was pretty much what happened. They pulled the body out. The kids were all there. Um, and I, I, I can't even fathom that in this day and age, having that happen to all of those children. Maxwell's parents were his mom was an invalid she had had polio and the saddest part about this too is she she died two years later after she lost her son and mr breeze was um working at the wpa at that time and um when they went to tell him it was their only son and maxwell had been so committed to his mother it was a rarity for him to get out and do things but he was a talented kid. He had been in Boy Scouts. He had been, um, he sang in the choir. There's accounts of him in a play. So, I mean, he was just an all around good boy, but he was, and they were good people. So the constable has to um, do the very sad work of retrieving Max's body. And then it, in those first few hours after this has taken place, is there, does he call the coroner? I mean, what? how is this sort of officially yeah. written up? Um, the coroner came and pronounced Tim dead. And I don't know the intricacies of that, but the parents had to identify him. Um, and in the meantime, then, um, the boys had been interviewed, and they said it was Idaho that had done this. Idaho was about nine months old at that time. Um, And my grandparents 
the constable went to their house and said they had to tie him up immediately. He had to be confined, not off the leash until further notice. And um, my dad had been at a picnic in Hamlin Beach and my uncle Norm went and got him and brought him, got him home. And my grandfather swore to his dying day that that dog never left the house or the porch. Which becomes extremely important in the hearing and in the trial um, that we'll talk about in a little bit. There is this sort of lingering question of, was it this dog? Which dog was it? Where did the dog come from? And those questions were never fully and satisfactorily resolved, were they? No, they weren't. And my Uncle Jack always said that the dog's fur was never wet that day, except, you know, after my dad had left home. Um, When they were taking care of him, he said he was always dry. And he he also said that to his dying day. So I, that's, that's what I know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, and Idaho was a, uh, he was a mutt, but he was a mutt with kind of a recognized uh, ancestry. I mean, there was some Airedale in him. Is that right? Airedale and uh, police dog. It was what my dad called a German shepherd. Um, And uh, he was smart. He was a good dog. He was a playful puppy. And um, my dad certainly loved him. And my father always loved creatures. My grandmother, he, she instilled it at all of us to this day. <laughs> the impact on your father's family, your grandparents and your father and your uncle was almost immediate, wasn't it? Yes, it was, um, well, Uncle Jack had been friends with Maxwell Breeze, so there was grief. And then when, at first, they just said, tie the dog up. And then within a short time, he received a notice that he was to appear in regard to dangerous dogs in front of Homer Benedict. Um, the judge for um, Rockport, New York. And at that time, he, he um, you know, people were starting to say, why do you still have that dog? That dog needs to be put to sleep. That needs to be shot. Back then, they shot him as well as anything. And they became very fearful that someone was going to try to take Idaho and destroy him. And my father maintained his innocence through all of that. So the legal aspects as the initial hearing um, is is set, these begin to form very quickly. Uh, one of the things that your father had to do or the, the court needed to have some sort of account of was, is this a dangerous animal? Has it been established that there's a history of violence attached to to this particular dog? No, he was a he was not a dangerous dog. He was just a fun loving dog. Um, my dad was and knew that he needed to get some help with it, but he had no idea where to start. Um, the financially, getting a lawyer or doing anything like that was out of the question. They they just didn't have the means for it. Um, so, and this is where the notes were a little bit off when um, my dad said that he met with Mary Falvester. And, and we think it was before the trial, or before the notice to appear in court with Judge Benedict, but we're not positive of that. It may have been the day of the hearing. And who is Mary? Tell us who Mary was. Mary Favister was from the Rochester Animal Protection Agency, and she was a tremendous friend to my father, and she knew what to do. And 
it, my dad said that she came to the house and I believe that it was before the hearing with the way the notes are written, but we didn't have any, any reference to it. Um, but she had the dog. She had, she told my father that he needed to, um, protect the dog because she was afraid he, someone would hurt him. And I, so she took Idaho to Scottsville where the animal um, protection agency had a humane society and um, kept him there. And they actually ended up after the hearing, hiring a guard who, who turned out to be, turned out to have been President Taft's uh, guard. (laughs) So that was a pretty exciting thing. My father said he, once they hired him, he wasn't worried at all. (laughs) I can imagine. So (laughs) let me ask you this. One of the other aspects of, of discovery in the legal process here, which is so important as we're kind of heading into the pre-trial phase of, of all of this, is not only do you have to establish whether the animal is violent, but you also have to establish whether there was any behavior on the part of the humans present in order to goad a reaction out of the dog or to upset the dog or to what, you know, what did these young men possibly contribute as far as their demeanor or behavior that day? The, the law has to know this, doesn't it? Yes. And they were questioned on it quite heavily. And every one of the children that were there said that no one had done anything. Maxwell was not taunting the dog. He was splashing around, but he, because he wasn't a very good swimmer, but he, he was not taunting the dog and the dog had just gotten in the water. I don't know exactly how it, that went down, but I know that the dog got in the water and that's when he allegedly attacked Maxwell Breeze and drowned him. So there's this through line from that day to the moment at which uh, Mary comes on board to advocate for Idaho and for your father as sort of a recognized member of the animal caretaking or animal um, sort of protective community. Okay. And and they elect Mary and your father's family. You write that this there's this kind of interesting calculated move by the defense. Um, Harry Sessions, the lawyer, has come on board thanks to some of Mary's efforts as well. There's a sort of calculated move uh, for Idaho to not be present at the initial hearing on July 21st. This is about two weeks after. Um, after Maxwell had had died, uh, why 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 do you not bring the dog in that first moment? Do you understand? Do, can you help us understand why that might be the case? Yes, um, Mary was really an intelligent woman. Um, the the way the egg and markets law read was that the dog could be confiscated at that time, and it also said that it had to be observed by uh, a veterinarian. And so by leaving him at the Humane Society with, um, by leaving him at the Humane Society, he would be protected and they, the judge would have the right to confiscate the dog had he been brought in there. And so that would have given them time to do something different if they had to. So she was really intelligent about leaving that dog behind so that he couldn't be taken, couldn't be seized. So Harry Sessions is quite a guy. And (laughs) um, (laughs) as I was reading your account, I I thought, you know, if every human being in the world had a defense attorney as passionate as as this dog had, I mean, I think I think there would be, um, you know, a lot more acquittals out there. Uh, would you? I agree. <laughs> how did he come on board? Well, after the 
after the hearing and the veterinarian and Mary were at the hearing and they actually got themselves in so that they could testify. And that extended the trial date for until August 5th. So that was where Mary really came into, uh, into her, into, uh, into Idaho's favor and gave her the opportunity to recommend and hire Harry Sessions. During that period too, they also did a lot of fundraising. In fact, after my mother was still in high school when this happened, and she was one of the ones collecting pennies for the dog, and she didn't ever know my father. You're kidding. <laughs> no, she told that story. She said, I collected pennies for Idaho. Oh, wow. And then and years later, so, they would meet. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So, um, but going back to your question, Harry, um, Mary recommended Harry Sessions, and Harry Sessions was a, a big personality. He was an amazing guy. I'm not sure if he really saw opportunity with this case or what, but he definitely, I mean, he called over 30 witnesses. He went, he wrote to um, a Mr. Terhune who had written, he was a dog expert. They went to various places to find out about other trials and he had, he had a playbook by the time they went to trial. You've got this passage, Laurie. It's on page 35 uh, where you, you start, um, where you describe what Harry did. Would you just read for us, beginning um, at the bottom of 35, where, where he says he began preparing his case just as if, and then just sort of take it through that next paragraph? Sure. He began preparing his case just as if he were defending a person facing the death penalty. Sessions sought out and subpoenaed more than 30 witnesses, contacted local and national authorities on dog behavior, located a lookalike dog to produce in court to test eyewitness identification, developed strategies for cross-examination of the witnesses, raised objections to a local newspaper poll, and even demanded that the dog be able to defend himself. I don't see how, in fairness, the court can turn down my request, Session said. I have to ask, uh, <laughs> according to all of your research, um, how is the dog expected to be able to defend itself? <laughs> I, I'm not sure, except through people. Um, they certainly couldn't. Do they put him um, on the stand the and he way. wags his tail? I mean. <laughs> uh, no, but I think he had character witnesses, that's for sure. <laughs> I mean, this, and they this... did have, I mean, he, when he walked into the courtroom the day of the trial, everybody was petting him. So, <laughs> I mean, he. <laughs> yeah, there's no jury tampering there at all, is there? Goodness. No, yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> and he was sleeping on Sessions' desk at one point. So, <laughs> yeah, there's, you have this photograph of him of him asleep on the boots of the um, officer Tuttle, who is the deputy who yes. is there to sort of keep him restrained, and he's just yes. taking a nap on his feet. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness, this really is uh, this really is almost too good to be true. Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you, Harry gets into this sort of whirlwind of activity and it really is remarkable how much effort he applies to to this particular case as you write in the book however the publicity surrounding this case has begun to snowball it has really begun to it has really begun to almost get out of hand and so you have people sort of writing in to the judge. You have people writing in to the court. You have the children saving their pennies for the dog's legal defense fund. You have experts weighing in. Uh, you have, uh, well, we talk a lot on Crime Capsule about the cranks and the looky-loos, you know, who want to get involved in a case, even though they have nothing whatsoever to do with it. Everybody wants a piece of the action, right? I mean, you have you have a lot of folks who are deciding that uh, they are going to be present for this 
spectacle, whatever it's going to look like, and they're going to weigh in. What what was that like? I mean, what what was go- what was happening there? It, nobody was really sure. Why would they all of a sudden descend on uh, Brockport, New York? Uh, for a very small town. Well, it's a it's a small village at that point. It was a very small village. Um, and why would they do that? We really don't know if it was because of um, it hadn't been that long before the Lindbergh baby was taken. Uh, was it slow news that that summer, and they needed something different to focus on? Um, but this became a national, not, I mean, you can find this in any newspaper. If you go online and look up the dog, Idaho, Brockport, New York, it'll come from newspapers all over, which goes from a long way from microfiche to this, because when I started looking, I was doing it in the Cornell libraries <laughs> and looking it up on microfiche and xeroxing it and it was a metal paper that was flaking when I got it out again. <laughs> so, but going back to it, um I don't know why it became so sensational, but it did. The uh, Paramount Films came out and and sent a team out to uh interview and uh record the trial. Um, it, it, it was called the newspaper headlines were murder dog trial, dog on trial for his life. Uh, there, there were a lot of sensational headlines. Um, and the funniest part about this is the dog was never really on trial. It was my father that was answering an egg and markets charge of whether the dog was dangerous or not. I was curious though, regarding the publicity even as it hits these national newspapers, you have such a wide spectrum of responses, right? In that you have one group of people who say, let the dog live, the dog didn't do anything wrong, the dog is innocent. Then you have the other end of the spectrum that says, put the dog down, a child's life is worth more than any animal, how dare you even consider letting this this vicious, rabid beast you know, live one more day. Both of the responses, both ends of the spectrum, tend not to really have many of the facts of the case. They're just sort of weighing in. Um, to what extent did this fervor of emotion surrounding the case actually influence the proceedings? Well, Judge Sessions was getting letters. He actually got one with a skull and crossbones, from my understanding. Um, there, there were letters that were sent to my father, to Mary, uh, to the ed- letters to the editor. Um, and that, it, it's a heart-wrenching story when you think about it. I mean, a child lost his life drowning, an only child to boot with a mom that's sick and a dad that um, is hardworking and carrying the burden. Um, it it so that was the first part. But then there's this innocent dog that my father and his family love dearly, and they don't believe he's guilty. And it all gets kind of lost on both sides. It it's. It's all, it, the the village actually became very divided. And things in the newspaper, there was a poll that was taken to see whether the dog should live or die. And it was almost a draw. And by and they didn't can't they didn't count all the votes and um that we can get into that later, but it was there was arguments in town. You couldn't hardly talk about it. When my father walked into that courtroom, he knew whose side everyone was on. It was a very vocal and painful time. You know, there's a third camp of opinion uh, that weighed in, of course, which are the um, the opinions sent in, the letters of advocacy sent in, the um 
the cards and the notes that arrive from other dogs in support of Idaho, yeah. <laughs> right? Can you tell us just what on earth was happening with these dogs riding in Idaho's uh, defense? <laughs> well, Kentucky boy sent a dollar, which was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And there were there were a couple of famous dogs that came in. Then you had the alibi dog. There were actually a total of five dogs that were involved in the the story. Um, but uh, the letters were very very interesting. I actually have a copy of the Kentucky Boys letter that um, hit, hits me best. <laughs> Oh, I mean, it it is interesting. The age, we are well into the age of the celebrity trial by the 1930s. I mean, that's no no, uh, new news right there. But the age of the uh, celebrity trial involving a dog or the age of the celebrity dog getting involved in a trial, I mean, that confluence (laughs) might be a little new in American history, just a little. I'm not an expert. I don't want to say for sure, but I think we might be onto something a little novel. <laughs> but tell me, tell me, Laurie, I mean, this is interesting because as you and Bill write in the book, the tradition, the legal history of putting animals on trial is not new at all. In fact, that is a tradition that goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And you actually cite a legal historian who had published a book just a few years prior to this particular event um, by uh, a gentleman named E.P. Evans, who had done just an enormous amount of work on the what it meant in the Middle Ages, say, for instance, or in the French a revolutionary period to try animals for wrongdoing. So this goes way back, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that, and it wasn't just dogs that were tried. That was the interesting part. It was also goats and uh, pigs and that sort of thing. Um, I believe there's a mosquito here, at one point, which gets... Uh, <laughs> well, the mosquito... I think the mosquito in the letter that they sent was um, kind of a, they wanted to put a mosquito on trial because, and they were saying how ridiculous the trial was, but that, that, yes, that was in there too. Um, Historians believe that Evan's list of 191 animal trial is only a fraction of such trials that took place in the middle ages. So it goes back that far. And his list is limited by the fact that during the Middle Ages and even later, court records were often poorly kept, lost, or completely destroyed, which also happened in this case because Mr. Sessions, when he retired, took those court um, the court records with him, and after his death, they were destroyed. So, and we had heard that. I, I knew that when I was back in 1970 when I started the quest because I went to the the town offices and the village of Sweden, and so did Bill. We traveled in, in shared pathways, so we both had the same information. Yeah, that really is remarkable. I mean, it's it's worth um, asking to the extent that that the law can determine these these things. Do animals have conceptions, you know, more advanced animals of right doing and wrongdoing, or are they responsible for their actions in the same way that, that humans are? And there have been some cases over the years that have tried to, to conclude that they are responsible in the same way as persons. And in fact, they should be tried as persons. <laughs> yeah, there was a, a, a place where, um, and Bill had written about this. They asked the dog to raise his paw, and when he didn't <laughs> raise his paw, <laughs> was that an admission of guilt? <laughs> 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 and so look, things have certainly changed then. And I think that was the other thing that drove me to want to see the story told. 
1936, we took time within one month to try a dog in less than a month. And right now we can't hardly get a speeding ticket done in that timeline. So, uh, but it's a sign of the time. There are two important wrinkles at this point in the story before the actual trial begins in early August. The first wrinkle is that Judge Benedict could have ended this entire affair very succinctly based on New York state law, but he didn't. Why was that? Well, I think that it was a a couple of different things. I think he wanted everyone to feel like they had been justly served and by involving the people, um, he would come up with the right decision. I also think he was a dog lover. I, I, I think that he believed maybe that the dog didn't do it maliciously or on purpose or whatever. And I think he wanted to make sure that when he made his decision, it satisfied everyone that he had done his job. And so um, he could have just, according to the law, he could have just um, said the dog is vicious or the dog is not. The dog is not vicious. And a veterinarian, which they had, would be able to tell him that and which appeared at the trial. So those things, I think, entered into it all. The other wrinkle which is interesting here and which by this point has been completely lost in the proceedings is that this trial was not about Max Breeze. This trial was not about a murder of a young man by an animal under the strictest definition of the um, or the, the strictest protocol of filings in the court system, this was about an entirely separate incident, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And the notice that my father received to appear in court on for the first hearing, and I, I don't have the date in front of me, but the, um, and it wasn't a hearing, it was a notice of attendance or, I'm sorry. It's a, it was a summons of some sort, right? Uh, it was a summons. Thank you. Um, to appear. And so that was actually filed by Paul Hamlin. Paul alleged that he had been attacked two different times in the Brockport Canal um, while swimming after Maxwell's death by a black dog. And he said it was Idaho. And that was why um, my father had to appear. My father always felt that there was no way it was his dog because they they were on such high watch for that dog and keeping him tied as instructed. But that was what the notice was. But what it did was it resurrected Maxwell's death. Um, But Maxwell's name does not appear on the summons. But it was enough, the, the emotion, the sensationalism, the sort of currents of feeling that are running through this particular community, it was enough to bring your whole family into this swirling drama and to put this dog on trial. Yes, absolutely. And uh, my father's biggest fears were what would happen following that summons. And... Uh, my grandmother uh, also, who just loved the dog, um, she, she used to hold a bumblebee in her hands. I mean, she, w- she just was in touch with nature. She was a, a really wonderful lady, um, the entire family. But Maxwell's family had to endure hearing all about all of these things again in a very short time after losing their son. So it did two things. Both families were affected. So the stage is set on the day that the trial begins for 
a great reckoning, not just of laws and statutes and precepts, but of the hearts of so many people of that community. Yes, absolutely. And both sides were hurting. It wasn't, it, it, it was a passion for both sides. And having been a mother now, I understand the passion of losing a child. I have fortunately not ha- lost any children at this time, but my heart would break for someone that had lost a child. On the same token, I have a dog that if I were to have him accused of, and I believed he was not, not guilty, I would do what my dad did. Well, we will come to that next time. Thank you, Laurie, for joining us. Okay. Thank you for having me and letting me tell the story. Thanks for listening. Our guest this week has been Laurie Verbridge, author of The Brockport Murder Dog Trial, Bizarre Tragedy and Spectacle on the Erie Canal, available from ArcadiaPublishing.com. Join us next time for the second part of our interview and for the conclusion to this canine caper. I'm sorry, they made me. Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. It is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. A special thanks to our producer, Bill Huffman, even when he makes me make terrible jokes, audio engineer Ian Douglas, production director Bridget Coyne, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To find out more about Crime Capsule and our dozens of other shows, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty, and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the Cheesewire Killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts.